Thank you very, very much for these kind words. And uh, we will indeed uh, devote these few uh, moments of learning in memory of your father. Uh, I basically would like to start with a question, um, which will be maybe an unusual question. Um, what is the essence of Yom Kippur? Uh, I know that traditionally we uh, understand, we were told since kindergarten, that uh, Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. You have to atone for the sins that we did. And uh, it's one opportunity to bridge, as I said yesterday, between the ought and the is. In other words, we have a certain idealistic picture of what should have been our lives. And we have the realistic picture of what it was. And I don't know for you, but for me there is always a discrepancy. It's not always exactly as we would have wanted it to be. And therefore, the concept is that once a year we have the opportunity to somehow bridge between the ought and the is. It seems to me that Yom Kippur is much more complicated. And I would like, with your permission, to start by a question, which is, why is it that before Ne'ilah, we read the book of Yonah? It seems to me that the book of Yonah is the most inappropriate book that could have been chosen to be read on Yom Kippur. Why inappropriate? Because the book of Yonah is basically the book of the one prophet which refuses to prophesize and does everything he can in order to disobey to what HaKadosh Baruch Hu orders him to do. But even when eventually, after all the peripheries that we know, he ends up going to Nineveh, and the people of Nineveh end up Making this famous tshuva, we have chapter 4 in, uh, in, the, in the book of Yonah. And it seems to me that chapter 4 is totally superfluous. Why? Because the goal has been reached. Akadosh Baruch Hu wanted the people of Nineveh to be warned and to have an opportunity to return from their sins. That's what they did. From top, from the king, all the way down. So they all basically did what so few of us are able to do on a regular basis, which is to do a real tshuva. And why do we need chapter 4? Uh, Let's go and read the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. The first 
uh, I hope that everybody has their hands out. Um, in the first uh, uh, source, number one, there are two parts, chapter three and chapter four. Vayar, the last pasuk yud, Vayar ha'elohim et ma'asehem ki shavu midarkam ha'ra'a Vayinachem ha'elohim ala ra'a asher diber la'asot la'em velo asa. God saw the deeds of the citizens of Nineveh that they indeed they withdrew, they changed their behaviors and God, so to speak, decided not to do to them what he planned to do and he did not do it. In other words, the tshuva of the people of Nineveh was so sincere that God decided not to punish them, although he warned them that Od Arbaim Yom in another 40 days Nineveh will be turned upside down, and he didn't do that. Chapter 4, Pasuk Aleph starts with Vayera el Yonah ra'a gedola vayicharlo. Yonah was very upset with this. And Yonah will remain upset throughout the book. It's not that we're going to have a Hollywoodian uh, happy end. There is no happy, happy end in this, in this book. Yonah will remain very upset. There is no other word with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He does not accept the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu decided not to put in action what he warned the people that would happen and what really they deserve. Why does Yonah think that the people of Yonah deserve it? Because Yonah maybe knows quite well what sometimes we want to ignore. That even people who make tshuva Usually it's a tshuva in the short or middle run. But in the long run, we all keep, every Yom Kippur, asking for slicha and kapara for the exact same things that we asked for the year before and two years before and five years before. Let's be honest. That's, that's the reality. And Yonah knows that. פסוק ב' ויתפלל אל אדוני ויאמר אנא אדוני הלוזה דברי עד היותי על אדמתי על כן קידמתי לברוח תרשישה כי ידעתי כי אתה אל חנון ורחום ערך אפיים ורב חסד וניחם על הרעה ואתה אדוני קח נא את נפשי ממני כי טוב מותי מחיי not to go wherever you sent me. I knew exactly that it would end up this way. It's always this way. You're, always, these people are always able to convince you. As we say in Hebrew, La'avod alecha. We're able to, they're able to, to show 
as if they would be sincere, and it works for a short while, but in the long run, I know it won't work. And now, take my life. In other words, if you think that by taking my life, I, I insist on remaining here, no, my life has no meaning. There is no meaning in such a world. And now I come to the Pasuk, which interests me the most in this chapter. And that's the answer of God. Vayomer Adonai haheitev haralach. Are you really upset? I noticed this year that in the entire Tanakh, God never refers to feelings. Never. Refers to feelings. And here it does. Actually, I shouldn't say never, because there is one other example. And that's Kain. And the term is exactly the same. But otherwise, not for Moshe. And Moshe has arguments with the Kadosh Baruch Hu. Not with Abraham, not with David, not with Shlomo, not with the good kings such as Hizkiyahu, not with the bad kings. Akadosh Baruch Hu doesn't refer to feelings. Here, Akadosh Baruch Hu asks, Yona Haitev Haralach, are you really upset? And the fact that there is another example, that there is another case, brought me to reread, and I invite you to reread with me the story of Cain and Hevel. Source number two. I will read the beginning of chapter 4. I know that you, we all know that. It's a well-known passage, one of the most studied passage in the entire Bible. Nonetheless, we might find some new insights. Let's try. The Hadam Yadait Chavaishto. Vatahar, vateledet kain, vatomer kaniti ish et Adonai. Hadam had a relationship with his wife. She became pregnant and she gave birth to Cain. And she said, I acquired a man. God. This is very important. Kaniti ishet Hashem. Kaniti. Patosef laledet. She gave birth again. Etachiv to his brother at Havel, to Abel. Vahi Evel roet son, and Havel was a shepherd. Vekain ayahoved adama, and Kain was working the land, was working the field. Vayimi ketzi amim, and after a few days, vayave kain mi priya adama, kain brought an offering from the fruits of his land, 
Minchal Adonai as an offering to God. Hevel brought also the good parts of his flock. And God accepted the offering of Hevel, accepted Hevel and his offering. I'm sorry. Accepted Hevel and his offering. To Cain and to his offering, God did not accept. And Cain was very upset. You remember with Yonah? Same expression. He was very upset. And I will translate very freely. He cried. His face fell. That's a nice way to express frustration, grief. He cried. As we all do when we are in real grief. Before we continue, I would like to ask the following question. Why didn't God accept Cain? As we say in Hebrew, Ribono shel olam. What? What did Cain do? He had the idea of bringing an offering. His brother merely followed after him. But he was the, the one who initiated the entire project. So why didn't God accept his offering? What did he do wrong? Keilu Makara. What's the story? What did he do wrong? I would like to continue and then to try to answer to this question. And God said to Cain, Why are you upset? Why are you crying? Why are you in such a grief? If you would improve your deeds, you will be able to make it. However, if you don't, La you are on the edge of sinning. It will be your temptation. And you'll be able to control it. God accuses Cain to be on the verge of sinning? What sin did he do? What is the sin? God accuses him. And we've learned, I, I, I don't know you, I. I've been learning this passage for many years. <laughs> it never occurred to me. Because we're so used to continue the reading that we've started in the kindergarten that we don't reread this those verses. But why how can God accuse Cain of something? So that's on the one hand. 
On the other hand, it says, we see that here indeed God refers to his feelings. And those are the two only examples. If you have an, uh, any other idea, please let me know now or later. I'll be glad. I didn't find any other reference to feelings in, throughout the Bible. Is it possible that the key to understand this lays in the first Pasuk? Chava says when she gives birth to Cain, Kaniti ish et Hashem. There is, maybe, in the idea of Cain bringing an offering, there is this idea that one can really acquire God. And maybe this is the essence of bringing a sacrifice. I will go one step further. We will notice that when Hevel brings his offering, it says, Vehevel hevi gamhu. Whoever raised children knows that the little one tries to emulate what the older one is doing. That's derech haolam. That's how things are. But Cain, in bringing his offering, ignores totally his brother heaven. For him, to bring the sacrifice is a means for him to get closer to God. Not only to get closer theologically, but to get closer in the sense that if I'm bringing a sacrifice, then... God can really be mine. And it seems to me, at least that's the, that's the thesis I want to suggest this evening, and I'm aware that I might not get the approval of the entire audience. But I'll continue nonetheless. It seems to me that this is connected to... Maimonides' statement that sacrifices are only bedi'evid. They were only accepted as a uh, a forestry, as a concession. That's not the, the right way. Why? Because when man is bringing an offering, he is tempted to believe that by bringing, bringing this offering, he can really, sorry for the expression, have God in his pocket. He is mastering God. God is now his. And from all temptations, 
from all temptations. And God knows how many temptations we are faced with. This might be the most serious one. The most tempting one. When I'm tempted by some forbidden food, by some forbidden behavior, by some forbidden deed, once I ate, once I accomplished whatever I wasn't supposed to accomplish, I have a feeling of having missed something. But here, there is a sense, there is a feeling that I'm able really to connect to infinity, to connect to the absolute, to connect to God. There can't be a feeling of having missed something. On the contrary, there is what Christian theology calls Unio Dei. I'm unifying with God. I am, so to speak, a little bit part of God. This is the real temptation. And that's why Akadosh Baruch Hu answers to Cain. Why are you upset? Why are you in grief? I understand you meant well. But try to reflect yourself. What was behind what prompted your initial decision to bring an offering. Wasn't it that? And that's why Hashem says, What I want is one thing. That you improve your deeds. That's what's important. What's important is not for you to dream about unifying with God. That's the problem. The main problem is that men, and in this particular case, Cain, was hoping that by bringing, the, the, by bringing such an offering... God would be his. That indeed, what his mother said initially, Kaniti ish et Adonai. Kaniti. I purchased. I acquired. As if God would be mine. We'll go back to Yuna a bit further. But let's go to maybe what we conceive as the ultimate offering. Source number three. I'm referring now to Akidat Yitzchak, obviously. Abraham hears God asking him to go and to bring his son as an offering. 
וישכם אברהם בבוקר, he wakes up early in the morning, and he goes. Let's pay attention to a few verses. Source number three, verse seven, Pasuk Zayin. ויאמר אבי, ויאמר הנני בני, ויאמר הנה האש והעצים, ואייהסה לעולה. אברהם, here's all of a sudden his son. Since he heard God, he took his son. He didn't speak to him. But all of a sudden, The boy is speaking. And he's saying to his father, You have the fire, you have the wood, where is the offering? Where is the animal? And Avraham answers, God will find his offering, my son. And we all know that this answer can be read in two different ways. Either, don't worry, there'll be something to be offered, or, Elohim yirelo aseleola, you want to know what's the offering? Beni, it's my son, it's you. Abraham is in some kind of religious ecstasis because he now has the opportunity to really demonstrate not only like Cain who brought an offering of the fruits of the land not like Hebel who brought some parts of the flock that he is going to be the one who really is going to show and then he comes to the place he builds the altar he takes his sons his son And he is about to slaughter him when, when he has to hear God again. Again God says, Avraham, Avraham. And he answers, Hineni. And then God says, Al tishlach yadcha el anar ve'al ta'aslo me'uma. Don't do anything to your son. Let's pay attention. Al tishlach yadcha el anar. Don't take your hand to slaughter your son. Ve'al ta'aslo me'umayn. Don't do anything to him. Why is there a repetition? The Midrash says, When God said to Abraham, Al tishlach yadcha el anar, I'm quoting the Midrash. The Midrash says, Amar Avraham la Kadosh Baruch Hu, 
Let me wound him. Let me do something. What is this? I have this opportunity and now you want to take from me this opportunity? He is in a situation where he really feels that now he could have demonstrated An important contemporary French philosopher, a woman who started in France and in her later years taught philosophy at Barilan University, Eliana Mado Levi Valenci, has the book which she calls The Eleventh. Nisayon. There are ten Nisayonot, ten ways, ten occasions during which God tests Abraham. From Lech Lecha to Lech Lecha, as we all know. But she says there is an eleventh test. And that's the toughest. That's the ability to hear Al Tishlach Yad Chaylana. Don't do anything to him. That's the toughest. Avrami is able to do so. But you will notice that it comes with a very high price. From that moment on, actually from Pasuk Daled on, from Pasuk Zain, I'm sorry, on, when his son tried to establish a connection and tried to ask him where is the offering? Abraham didn't answer and from that moment on Yitzchak will not, will not talk to his father anymore. He will come to bury him with Ishmael after his death but there is like a silence there is like a roaming silence. Yitzchak is unable to speak with his father. Let's remember that when Cain had the idea of bringing this offering, he ignored Hevel. Hevel evi gamu. Hevel followed in the footsteps of his brother Cain. Cain was in the same kind of religious ecstasis. And very often these situations mean to ignore your fellow man, your fellow brother. And maybe that's exactly what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to teach Cain. True? Cain was not able to listen, was not able to hear, and that's why it ends up with the tragedy of the first murder. True? Abraham is able to listen. Abraham is able to withdraw at the last minute from slaughtering and even wounding 
his son. Maybe this is the reason why we are reading this on Rosh Hashanah. For years I didn't understand. Yes, obviously. Again, the kindergarten teacher, I hope I'm not making any political mistakes here. The kindergarten teacher taught us that, of course, Abraham had the root of obeying to God to this ultimate test and we somehow would like to have the benefit of this merit for us. And I just want to ask you, is this something which is fair? Should we today, in 2014, legitimately claim that we should be given a good year, which obviously I wish to all of you, merely because Abraham Avinu so many thousands of years ago was willing to bring his son as an offering? Is this something that makes sense to anyone really? Maybe we read this on Rosh Hashanah because our sages who picked this passage realized that when we are claiming that God is the real king, we are ipso facto saying that there are certain limitations that we should not go beyond. That the korban is always a concession and that's not the proper way to accept God as our king. Maybe the right way to accept God as our king is to recognize the creation of God that is the other. Maybe that's what we should do. And maybe that's what we should learn from Abraham and not merely claim that we have the merit of what he did so many years ago. Many Abraham has a teaching to give us. Maybe the teaching of the Akedah is Al Tishlach Yadcha El Anar Ve'al Ta'aslo Meuma Maybe that's what we should learn. Let's go to source number four. The Gomorrah in Baba Batra says something very surprising. Amar Rabbi Yochanan gadol ha-neemar be'iyov yoter mimar she-neemar be'avraham. De'ilu be'avraham k'tiv ki ata yadati ki yere Elohim ata. U'be'iyov k'tiv ish tam v'yashar yere Elohim v'sar mera. 
אמר רבי אבא ברבי שמואל, איוב ותרן היה בממונו. היה מנהגו של עולם נותן חצי פרוטה לחנווני, איוב ויתרה משלו. The Gemara goes as far as saying that what is said about Iyov is greater than what is said about Avraham. At the end of the Akedah that we just read, it says that God says, Atayadati, now I know that you really fear God. But regarding Iyov, it says, He was an honest man, a straight person, who feared God, the Sar Merah, who withdrew from doing evil. And the Gemara asks, what does that mean, who withdrew from doing evil? And the Gemara answers, on behalf of Rabbi Abba Bar Shmuel, and says that, Iov, when he had some job to be done, paid the worker honestly. That's what Rashi says. He paid over and beyond what he was supposed to do. The test of being a Yireh Elohim is not how many offerings you bring. The test is how much you pay to the plumber who comes to fix the sink in your house. That's what Yov did. The relationship to your fellow man, to the one that needs your salary in order to make a living, how much are you going to pay him? How will you pay him? That is why the Gemara goes as far as saying that Iov was greater than Avraham. Iov didn't bring any offering. On the contrary, he complained. When his kids passed away, he complained. He felt it was unfair. Maybe when things <coughs> seem to us unfair, maybe we should say that. Maybe, if we go back now to Yonah, maybe we should reflect again about what's happening with Yonah. Yonah, on the one hand, disagrees with God. Because there is a theological debate between Yonah and God. Yonah does not accept God's theology. For Yonah, he doesn't suggest that there should be a korban. But in order for the world to be a, a place where you can really live, it should be a place where things are, as we say, fair. And fair means that 
if somebody did something right, he should be rewarded. If somebody did something wrong, he should be punished. However, otherwise, there is no way to conduct the world. Isn't it the picture that we have for so many thousands of years? We keep complaining about almost everything. Why? Because things aren't exactly the way they should be. But on the other hand, chapter 4 is the chapter where HaKadosh Baruch Hu teaches something to Yonah. And he says to Yonah, you know, your feelings are hurt. That's possible. But, remember, the world cannot be an ideal place. Let's go back to source number one and read this time the end of the second passage. First, let's go back to Pasuk Hei. Vayetze Yonah minair. Yonah came out of Ninveh. In other words, he remained in Ninveh because he was convinced that he would see sooner or later the inhabitants of Nineveh going back to their former deeds. He took place at the east of the city. And he made the little hut. He sat there in the shade, in the shade, until he'll see what's going to happen in the city. He has no illusions. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Then comes the story with this little tree, which is the kikayon. It's very hot. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, lets a tree grow quickly, swiftly. And the shade of the tree is bringing some comfort to Yonah and he's very happy. And then comes a worm which attacks the tree and it dries. It's so hot, it's becoming unbearable. And Yonah faints and he asks to die. Are you really upset regarding this tree? 
It's the second time that God says to him. The first time God asks him, Are you upset with yourself? Now he asks him, Are you upset with the tree? I'm upset to death. Things aren't exactly the way they should be. Things aren't exactly the way we want them to be. We would like to have more comfort. And we don't always. Vayomer Adonai Ata chasta ala kikayon Asher lo amalta bo velo gidalto Shebin laila hayav Bin laila avad You feel for this tree That you didn't put any effort for That came swiftly And disappeared swiftly Vani lo achus al ninve haira gudola and shouldn't I, says God, have mercy upon the big city of Nineveh, asher yesh bai harbe mishtemesre ribo adam that has more that hundred that hundred twenty thousand people asher lo yada benyiminolis molo who don't know the difference from right to left, God teaches something to Yonah, that the world is not perfect. And maybe we read the book of Yonah because of that machloket. Because what's fascinating is that Yonah does not accept, is not convinced by God. God has his claim, and remember, Yonah asks to die. He doesn't accept God's statement. And when I gave as a small title to this lecture, Yom Kippur as the quest for authenticity, I felt that maybe what's so fascinating is that on Yom Kippur we should be able to say to ourselves, this is what I feel. I have the feeling that too often we are, not you, me, Playing as if, as if we would be actors on Yom Kippur. We're trying to say, yes, tomorrow will be good and we'll be fine and we'll do all what we're supposed to do. And we don't. Honestly speaking, we don't. Maybe Yom Kippur is the day that we should really ask ourselves is it possible to do a little bit better? Not entirely? Is that within the range of what's doable? 
This is indeed what Hashem says to Yonah. And Yonah does not accept it. What is fascinating is that on the one hand we have this teaching which to me is very human and then we have the position of Yonah which is so godly, which is so radical. As if the roles would interchange Maybe the day of Yom Kippur is an opportunity for us to reflect upon what we are. I would like to finish with a very fascinating passage of a Gemara, which is on source number five. We all know that Yom Kippur is called Te'anu et nafshotechem You should suffer. There are a few sources on Vayikrat et Zayin it says Be'asor lachodesh te'anu et nafshotechem You shall be in a situation of suffering Ve'initem et nafshotechem Again at in chapter 23 it says on three occasions you should suffer <coughs> and any individual who shall not suffer this day intuitively what what means we should suffer how can we suffer we don't have to call are, in every society there are experts on suffering so we don't need them we all know we could refrain from this we could refrain from that let's see what the Gemara says I, I'm short in time the Gemara says, the Mishnah first says the following. Yom HaKippurim Asur Be'achila, Be'shtiya, Be'rechitza, Be'sika, Be'nilat HaSandal, Be'tashmish HaMita. There are five things which are forbidden on Yom Kippur. To eat and drink, to wash, to, to, to take a shower, to take a bath. To basically oint ourselves to wear shoes and to have intercourse, to have sexual intercourse. On that Mishnah, the Gemara says the following Tanura Banan, Te'anu et Nafshotechem. It says so many times that you should suffer. Yachol Yeshev Bachama o Batsina Kedeshi Yitzta'er. Is it possible that we should sit in some place where it's very hot and thus very uncomfortable? In other words, if we come to Shul on Yom Kippur and we have a seat which is exactly in front of the sun, maybe this is something we should seek in order to have 
ourselves suffer a little bit, or if we come to a place which happens to be very cold. Maybe that's what we should do. Says the Gemara, Talmud Omar, V'chol melacha lo ta'asu. The Torah puts two concepts one next to the other. On the one hand you should suffer, on the other hand you shouldn't make any melacha to perform any work. Ma melacha shev Just as regarding the melacha not performing a kind of work it's by restraining af inui nefesh by the same token inui nefesh should be passive and not active. We shouldn't do anything actively. Ve'ema says the Gomorrah and maybe heicha deyativ b'shimsha v'chaim la lei l'aneima leikum tuv b'tuv Probably page two now, and then it'll probably go in order after that. Uh, but this is the one from Tatanit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is a really fun source. Um, it's actually a pretty funny source, I think. Um, it comes from a Sechet Tatanit, um, and um, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak uh, says uh, to Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman, uh, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan had asked Rabbi uh, Yitzchak to. I'm sorry. <laughs> Rabbi Nachman had asked. Rabbi Yitzchak, uh, to give over a teaching. of you are teachers, or it seems irrelevant, or it seems to be out of sync with the way um, we see the world. So I think what the Ramban is suggesting is that Talmudic reasoning, and particularly, as I said, perhaps the part of Talmudic reasoning that makes us most uneasy at times, um, gives us practice in a practice. Right? It gives us practice in the practice, um, not in parking our good judgment um, to say that all positions are equally plausible because everything can make sense, and I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing, um, but the practice of seeing we lead um, our lives into how we encounter other people with whom we disagree, uh, other people who make us uncomfortable, 
into how we decide uh, what to believe and to what path uh, we ought to commit ourselves. And I was thinking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it struck me that in a certain sense, um, I'm, I live uh, a good part of my life right now in a, a completely uh, <laughs> in a completely non-Jewish environment, which isn't to say that there aren't a lot of Jews, half Jews, and quasi Jews there. There are, but a very non-Jewish environment. The first UJA. Anyone who's not coming should send a donation and feel guilty and the rest you're familiar with. 3,000 years ago. Now, what should happen when they return? Some people returned. Several thousand come back. There's a list of them in chapter 2 in the book of Ezra. What should happen? This is redemption. Now, if you want a great set of prophecies about how the Jewish people were encouraged in Babel to get out of... Often, I think, when we think of kind of the, the primary meaning of why, in a phrase like, why study Talmud or why learn Talmud, uh, we think of it in terms of what is the purpose, um, which is not necessarily a bad question. Um, on the other hand, at least in my view, uh, asking why in the sense of what is the purpose can make it sound like the activity of learning Talmud is kind of instrumental, right? We do it because for such and such ends... And whenever we think of doing something for such and such ends, um, it can be seen as reducing the activity to those ends uh, and its, its uh, value being limited to the ends that it serves. That's what I mean by it being instrumental. And I guess I don't see Talmud study that way. Um, it, we could ask you know, why Talmud study over the course of time has taken the, the centrality of place that it has uh, in our Talmud Torah, we could ask why it takes the centrality that it has in our rabbinic training, uh, in our schools. All of those are, are good questions, and we could ask whether that should even be so. Um, but the, but th is this giving feedback, or is that my imagination? So why don't you tell me? Is that better? Yeah. Okay. If, if anything sounds horrible or you don't like me, just let me know. It doesn't, don't be shy. Um, um, you know, a anything that asks about it in a way that sort of reduces it to, to an instrumental sense of something I, I wasn't so comfortable with. And I think, you know, the, the kind of the purpose of the Deer Shoe series in general, and I don't know how many of you have been at any of the other ones, but we started out uh, last uh, spring with one on, on prayer, um, called Prayer, What Are We Doing? Uh, then we had one on uh, mental illness, um, and now we're doing this one, and we hope to have a couple of others uh, this year. They're, they're in the works right now. Um, and really the purpose of them is to take something that we do do or it's something that does exist uh, in our lives um, that presents challenges to us. And take that as a given, right? This is something in our lives that presents a challenge to us. Uh, and not ask whether it should be in our lives as much as say, okay, well, let's think about that. Let's think about what that means. Let's think about how we understand that. Let's think how we can deal with it uh, in a way um, that, that brings meaning uh, and, and wealth um, to our lives. Um, so it's not so much about why in the sense that if we can't give a good answer, we shouldn't be doing it, right? It's more that, well, we do this, and what's it really about? Right? What is its meaning uh, in our lives as Jews? And that's really 
um, uh, the kind of longer description of what the title uh, was supposed to have been had you and your family not um, been so devastatingly silent when we rolled out the real title. Um, so uh, what I'm going to talk about tonight, um, I, I call this talk um, Talmud Study um, as a Religious Practice. And what I'm going to be talking about um, is how I think Talmud study can, which doesn't necessarily mean it does, um, but how I think Talmud study can um, cultivate um, habits of heart and mind um, that are important for the religious formation of a person and of a Jewish person. Um, and um, what I'll be doing is highlighting several aspects uh, of Talmud study. Some of them will kind of overlap and intersect with each other, so there'll be a little looping back and overlapping and things like that. Um, and I'm going to introduce uh, each one with a brief passage from either the Talmud or uh, one of the Talmud's commentators. So the handout you have in front of you, um, there's a lot of blank, uh, blank space um, in the thought that people might want to uh, jot down notes or questions or doodles or whatever you want to do with that space that keeps you, uh, that keeps you engaged uh, in the talk. Um, yes. Oh, great. So raise your hand high if you don't have a hand up. Okay. So um, the first uh, text is actually from the Ramban. Um, this is uh, the Ramban in Milchemet uh, Hashem on Masechet uh, Sanhedrin. What means to imitate God? So the Gemara says the following. Is it possible to imitate God? So the Gemara answers, Just as He is merciful, you should be merciful. What does merciful mean? You should have a relationship with your fellow man. To imitate God means to have a concern for your fellow man. That's all. Not bringing offerings. And that's why the Rambam says, that's why Maimonides says, that the idea of the, of, of, of the Korbanot was a concession. Because anyone who brings a Korban really thinks that he's going, even the word Korban, Korban means Karov, close to. So, we might think that, you know, God is, so to speak, in my pocket. He's not. Korban Todah, Korban Shlamin, absolutely. They, they, are, they are expressions which are legitimate, but not, not I would say, a priori. Not I, I'm, I'm very, I, I'm, I'm very short in time, but I will give you my, my reading of this. My reading is that regarding both, Kai, both Adam and Chava, we're not talking about uh, gender specificities, but there are. But in this respect, about what is typically human. And from that perspective, I don't see a difference. I mean, I, 
there are differences, obviously. But Chava uh, uh, um, uh, is reflecting something which is very human, both in Perik Gimel and in Perik Dal. Absolutely. 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 And I will take a la- last question because I have to run. Yes. No, a, a mitzvah is something that I have to perform uh, a priori. In other words, that's something that God is asking me to do, uh, is asking man to do. A korban is, a, at least in, in this context of kind, is an initiative of man who aims to, as I said, so to speak, take control upon God. And this is what's unacceptable. I thank you very much, Anatova. Thank you.